Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Let's just take a moment and... uh Look, looks like we have a email that's come in right off the top, but let's uh, let's go ahead and I'll uh, do my little promo here. We're going to be talking about problems, well, promise and problems with the use of psychedelics in psychiatry today. We're going to be uh, looking at winners uh, in health science of large cash prizes and talk a little bit about why you should know about these advances. And I have another heartening germ warfare story about weaponizing viruses to fight cancer cells. And what you need to know about the blood biomarker your doctor was taught to mostly ignore. Now, let's open up that email. This is from Liz in Pacific Grove. Liz writes, I'm a 77-year-old female who is overall in good health. A couple of weeks ago, I apparently had an arthritis flare-up in my left shoulder joint. I'm now in physical therapy and taking 200 milligrams of Celebrex once a day. This has helped immensely with the pain and range of motion. However, I don't want to stay on Celebrex and was wondering about switching over to turmeric and how to go about it, including how much to take. Also, should I just stay on turmeric indefinitely to control the inflammation and pain? Is turmeric a good choice for this? Thanks in advance for any light you can shed on this. Well, first of all, uh, Liz, I want to uh, commiserate with you for hurting your shoulder. And let's talk for a moment about Celebrex just in general. It's an excellent anti-inflammatory. And over the short term, it has the advantage of not destroying your beneficial gastric mucus and setting you up for a GI bleed. So when it came out, we loved it. We just loved it. There were three versions of this. And one of them ended up getting pulled off the market because it was shown to cause strokes and uh, increased heart attacks in postmenopausal women, which at 77, I'm imagining, applies to you. This was worrisome to all of us. We, none of us like to be causing an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And if you were to go way back in the archives, you'd probably find the program where I talked about this and uh, explained what was going on, but it's basically that these drugs ca- create an imbalance between thromboxane and cyclooxygenase, which are two compounds that respectively break up uh, blood clots and uh, stimulate blood clotting. And th- these were when you uh, when you suppress one of them, the one that breaks up the blood clots, and you don't suppress the one that that stimulates blood clotting, well, you end up increasing uh, blood clotting, which was completely unexpected, given given that this is a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. So, alas, it didn't show up in the original studies, because that was done on like 4,000 people, and you have to give it to 100,000 people before the statistical risk emerged. So, I don't want you taking the risk of a GI bleed either. So if uh, so, I don't want you to switch to ibuprofen. But you might also you might consider going on acetaminophen uh, initially as you make the transition over to the turmeric. In other words, take uh, fairly high doses, say five hundred. Uh, to a thousand milligrams of acetom, uh, acetaminophen two or three times a day, and the ter- and start the turmeric. The turmeric will take a while to work. And actually, you don't want to be taking turmeric; you want to be taking curcumin. And honestly, it's just easier to get an extract. The amount of turmeric that you would need to consume is about uh, a teaspoon a day, and that's a lot of turmeric. Uh, you. If you really love Indian food, you can do it. You'll need to include about an eighth of a teaspoon of pepper and figure out how to consume that. 
that will allow the curcumin in the turmeric to be absorbed. It's otherwise not terribly bioavailable, but the pepper helps with that. You could also buy a product that had the equivalent of 5,000 milligrams of turmeric in it and the black pepper, and those are out there. You could also get pre extracted curcumin, and the dose you're shooting for is about 500 to 750 milligrams for anti-inflammation. And it's an anti-inflammatory, but it doesn't have any direct analgesic properties. So that's why I'm telling you to also maybe consider the acetaminophen, particularly before your work, before your uh, physical therapy, because we want you moving And we know it'll make you hurt. And if you're just going in for a tough physical therapy session a couple of times a week, then taking the Celebrex before those sessions might be a really good strategy and staying away from it the rest of the time and just trying to get by with the acetaminophen and the curcumin. As far as continuing on it long term, I take some every day. I find it's extremely helpful for my aches and pains. Uh, which I have very few of, thank goodness. But when I go to the gym, I definitely notice uh, aches and pains at the 48-hour mark because I'm exercising hard enough to get them. And if uh, if the uh, hot bath does with Epsom salt doesn't do it, uh, the curcumin definitely keeps a lid on it. So I hope that's been helpful for you. So I promised you an update on psychedelics in psychiatry. And um, so I am bringing this to you from a overview. Let's let's start at the beginning. LSD was discovered by Albert Hoffman in 1949 when he accidentally synthesized a psychoactive uh, compound, a psychoactive, while messing around with a plant fungus called ergot. And he inadvertently took the first acid trip. Throughout the 1950s and early 1960s, respectable scientists and intellectuals like Aldous Huxley explored the phenomenology of this and other psychedelics. Hoffman himself also identified psilocybin as the active compound in magic mushrooms, and we'll be talking a lot about psilocybin in the next few minutes. Hundreds of studies were published on treating addiction, depression, and psychosis with psychedelics in the 50s and 60s. But, yeah, when you mix science and politics, weird things happen. In the 1960s, political protests against the Vietnam War uh, were all over American colleges, as was the increased use of psychedelics. Uh, The two of them incubated a kind of protest culture on college campuses that seriously threatened established authority figures. And... The psychedelics kind of got tarred with the same brush of rebellion uh, as, as the Vietnam War demonstrations, and LSD was outlawed in 1968, uh, causing the very promising therapeutic research that was being done to be completely abandoned for a generation. In 2000, a research study was finally approved And that was at Johns Hopkins. And in recent years, studies are being published that use modern imaging tools to look closely at the brain changes in real time that are seen in patients in these drug studies. And we'll be uh, discussing some of the findings and the emerging hypotheses about what is behind the proven behavioral changes that we're seeing with psychedelics in especially addiction and depression therapy. But what about mechanism? You know, I love to talk about mechanism. Psychedelics like mescaline, psilocybin, LSD, and DMT, which is dimethyltryptamine, block serotonin. They bind to a receptor for serotonin called 5-HT2A, which is abundantly present in the visual cortex, hence the altered visual processing associated with the psychedelics, abundant in the thalamus, and hence the euphoria, and also in the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in ideas 
and self-referential thought. The changes in neuronal firing also have a global effect on the interconnected networks in the brain. And while the drug is rapidly removed from the synapses in a few hours, these changes in the interconnected networks are long duration. And they seem to be long duration changes in thought patterns that the brain generates. And these last for weeks to months which is very intriguing and has generated a lot of uh, hypotheses. Now, here's a fun fact. Within 24 hours after receiving psilocybin, there are hair-like twigs on neurons. Uh, They're, well, let's start with, they're called dendritic spines. And so in a mouse study, 24 hours after getting psilocybin, they started looking at the mice brains with a microscope, and they found that they were had grown a whole bunch more dendritic spines. And, and these little hair-like twigs on neurons are the whiskers on a cat. They're the receivers that gather incoming signals, which are chemical signals in the brain. And this change in the increase in dendrites, uh, that persists. So one hypothesis is that more spines are a sign of increased neuroplasticity, meaning that the brains are more flexible and able to change their point of view, maybe escaping out of the habitual defeated thoughts of depression, for example, or the programmed stimulus reward loops of addiction. Psychedelics blocking the 5-HT2A receptors unlock the product of several DNA cassettes that produce substances such as a compound called brain-derived neurotropic factor that I've talked a lot about in reference to Alzheimer's disease. The single best way to increase your BDNF is exercise, particularly uh, weightlifting exercise. Anything that builds muscles basically causes this hormone to be released in the brain. And this BDNF increase that occurs with a single treatment with psychedelics persists for several months after a single dose. So once the DNA is turned on and starts being replicated, it continues to be turned on and replicated. There are also structural proteins in this cassette for those dendritic spines. So it starts to make sense, doesn't it? Uh, This has very interesting implications for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, in humans, since increasing BDNF is one of the few things we found that reverses Alzheimer's disease in humans. We found a whole bunch of things that work in our mouse model for Alzheimer's, but we haven't found much in uh, that those drugs actually translate to humans, which has been a great disappointment to, to the pharmaceutical industry. So, In the brain, we have a thing called the default mode network, and this is the pattern of coordinated brain activity that the human brain manifests when it's not doing anything in particular, when you're just sort of sitting there daydreaming or not making lists or doing anything terribly goal-oriented and your mind is wandering. That's your default mode network. And there are other Networks. There's a cognitive network, which is if you're doing math or you're trying to solve a problem or think through something, your cognitive network is at work. Uh, that's also work. That's also highly activated when you're reading, particularly technical material. Uh, functional MRI, uh, MRI allows us to see these networks in action. And here's where the psychedelic experience comes in. During the psychedelic experience, while the drug is on board you s- and the person is aware of an altered state, you see decreased activity in the default mode network. But then afterwards, when the drug washes out of the brain, you see an increase in activity that persists for a very, very long time. Alterations in the loops that run from the cortex to the striatum to the thalamus also happen. So this cortex, striatum, thalamus, cortex loop is the home to our ingrained behavior patterns and our ingrained thought processes, the stories we tell themselves, the recurring thoughts we have about ourselves. It's also 
that striatum the seat of the reward loops. So the hypothesis here is that the psychedelic trip hits a reset button that blows away the automatic maladaptive patterns that have gotten locked into an endless loop in the brain, just like when your computer gets confused, you hit the, you hit the escape or you reboot the computer. Some research has also suggested that the more mystical or spiritual the subjective experience of the trip is, the more powerful the reset, but others disagree. One skeptic is a man named Christopher Nicholas at the University of Wisconsin. He's doing a study which will give volunteers a uh, dose of psilocybin and a dose of midazolam at the same time with uh, their psychedelic. Now, midazolam is Versed, this trade name. It It's a drug that is related to Valium. It induces a pretty profound amnesia. For example, the amnesia you have for your colonoscopy is brought to you courtesy of Versed. Will the psychedelic experience still create change, Dr. Nicholas is asking, in behavior when it isn't remembered by the subject? Well, stay tuned. That's probably going to be published in a few years. Currently, if you're trying to treat depression or addiction with psilocybin, it's been effective in small studies and more are being done. I think it's very close to being approved, but it's a very resource intensive protocol. You have an eight hour session with constant therapist supervision. That's typical. Most of the time it's two therapists so that one can go to the bathroom and the person is literally never alone during the process. If we're going to be able to scale this therapy, we're going to need to First of all, validate its safety, and there's plenty of anecdotal stories from recreational users about bad trips to make us think twice before letting children try this alone in their home, right? But Or adults, for that matter, because I think on a trip, people go back to that child's mind, and that's why they can have such relevatory experiences and have such fun is that all of those adult patterns get blown out of the water. But the monsters come out too. So if we're going to be able to scale this once it's more solidly validated, we're going to have to find ways to use less human capital to do it. Perhaps, and I'm just thinking, but I'm interested in your ideas as well, perhaps a a single therapist could remotely monitor uh, the physiological markers, uh, heart rate, uh, pupil dilation, things like that, of distress, while a VR program is promoting a kind of peaceful, easy feeling in the patient to try to keep them from entering into a disturbed place. And perhaps we would be testing people with adverse childhood events, more particularly abuse situations, more thoroughly most particularly if those happened early in their life, because I think that's where a lot of those monsters come from, things that we've suppressed from our childhood or infancy. So perhaps co-administration of the uh, of the psychedelics with an anti-anxiety drug, if Christopher Nichols' work comes through, that might uh, also reduce the risk of a bad trip. We have a lot to learn here. But at least we're finally free to do the work and teach ourselves how to use this gift of nature to alleviate human suffering. I'm very excited about this work, and I'll be bringing you more as it becomes available. So I'm going to move to our next topic, and that is the Breakthrough Prize. $3 million in your pocket if you win the prize. And uh, should, you know, should we be financing science with these prizes or motivating science with these prizes? I think it's an open question. What do you think? Do scientists really work because of the possibility of winning the Nobel Prize with its prestige or winning the $3, billion, $3 million breakthrough prize? I'm, I'm not sure about that. It's the most lucrative award in science, well above the Nobel. Who won it this year? Well, Demis Hassibus and John Jumper, who were at DeepMind in London, created the tool 
part of DeepMind that has predicted the 3D structures of almost every known protein on the planet. We talked about AlphaGo a few months ago when it was first announced. It's uh, DeepMind was the AI that beat the Go master in Seoul, in uh, Lee Sedol was his name, in 2016. And the day after winning in Seoul, the team came and said, what's the biggest problem we can tackle? And the problem was protein folding. We already had a a SETI-like group of uh, crowdsourced human brain time that was being spent looking at protein shapes and trying to uh, fold proteins because finding protein shapes is the key to the new pharmacology, the key to being able to convincingly write the, rewrite the genome, which is, uh, well, it's, a, it's the holy grail for science, and it will allow us to create humans that can modify humans in such ways that they can tolerate extreme environments, not to mention modify food plant, uh, food plants as the environment becomes more and more extreme. We're, you know, what's on the table, my friends, is a complete collapse of the food chain. And one of the ways we're going to rescue the biology of the planet is by making it more resistant to climate change and possibly ourselves along the way. Uh, I read a lot of science fiction, so I can, I can make uh, all sorts of predictions about where this might go. AlphaFold got released as an open source version in tw- in July of 2021 and in July this year DeepMind released 200 million protein structures predicted from amino acid sequence and so far that data is being harnessed well like I say everything from antibiotic resistance to crop resilience they developed the algorithm but they made it available and provided those structures to humanity. That's a huge gift, and I think that's why they won, not just because they're smart, but because they gave a gift to humanity that's going to speed scientific advancement rather than just licensing it. Uh, This is huge. One of the researchers, Hasibis, says he's going to donate his some of his winnings, at least, to educational programs aimed at increasing diversity and also initiatives supporting schools in rural Nepal from where he is uh, an immigrant. Take that, anti-immigrant folks. Another really amazing thing was... Uh, a researcher in Palo Alto, our own Stanford University, Emmanuel Mignot, and a Japanese researcher, Masashi Yanagisawa, at the University of Tsukuba, Japan. And they discovered independently, mind you, that narcolepsy is caused by a deficiency of the brain chemical orexin. Narcolepsy is a terrible disease. It severely affects quality of life. And by knowing what's wrong with it, we should be able to synthesize using, for example, uh, reverse engineering the shape of orexin to figure out a DNA sequence that will build the protein that will fold into orexin. We are now going to be able to reverse engineer any protein we choose. And, you know, create, well, the sky's really the limit here. It's amazing. So I hope that you are as enthusiastic enthusiastic as I am about what the future holds here in science, because it's really amazing. A new genetically engineered virus has been developed that creates a one-two punch against advanced cancers. In initial findings from a phase one trial, it's early days yet, but this looks really good. Researchers found that RP2, a modified version of the herpes simplex virus, showed signs of effectiveness in about a quarter of patients with a range of very advanced cancers. 
The team at the Institute of Cancer Research London and the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust assessed the cancer-killing virus on its own in nine patients in combination with the immunotherapy drug nivolumab in an additional 30 patients. Uh, This was an ongoing phase one trial. Early studies mainly intended to test for safety and figure out a dosage for the drug. And it's uh, shown really good promise. So I'm sure additional studies will happen. Now, this is a genetically engineered uh, RP2 virus. It's injected directly into the tumors. So naturally, they were using tumors uh, of the eyeball, tumors of of the oral mucosa or the skin where they could get into the tumor without too much invasive work. But... It's designed, once it gets into the tumor, it multiplies, just like any virus, and bursts them from within. But it also blocks an important protein called CTLA-4, which is made by cancer cells and is a blocker of the immune system. So you know that immune, that cancer cells like to hide. This agent is able to pull off the mask and reveal uh, these and reveal the cancer to the immune system. It's also producing two other molecules, a GMCSF and something called GALVGPR. That would be a receptor of some kind, and. The these work in a uh, specific way. I've mentioned what the CTLA four does. The GMSCF hijacks. It's made by the cancer, and it and this hijacks uh, the machinery of the cancer cells, makes them make the GMCSF. And that weakens the immune system further and gets rid of that stealth effect that the uh, cancers have. And we've seen uh, really good results. Let's see. Uh, one page, three out of nine were, uh, I saw their tumors shrink. One man had a salivary gland cancer and his tumor disappeared completely. And he's 15 months out on this treatment and remains cancer free. Uh, the other two patients had esophageal cancer, also very difficult to treat, and melanoma of the eyeball that had already spread to the liver. Uh, these people were saw their tumors shrink and were still responding 8 and 15 months after starting treatment. These are people with terminal disease who have failed all other therapies. So to get this kind of result this far along in the disease is extremely promising. They also had 7 out of 30 patients who received both the RP2 virus and a checkpoint, an immune checkpoint inhibitor called nivolumab. Uh, these had melanoma. Two of the eight had uh, eye cancer. Of the these eight people of the 30 who responded, most of them saw their cancer growth halt or shrink. And... Of the seven who saw a benefit, six out of uh, six out of seven using the combination remained progression free at fourteen months. So this is a real game changer, and I just I love that it's the herpes virus that is being weaponized to go after cancer. I find there's something uh, that I find both ironic and extremely satisfying about that. Not really even quite sure exactly why, but I think it's just because I see so much herpes clinically, and uh, I, I like the idea of weaponizing it. Plus, you know, I just have, I'm just weird. I like things like that. This is from uh, George in Irvine, and uh, George writes, Consumer Labs. Dear Dr. Don, is Consumer Labs a reliable source of information? They seem to be doing a lot of what looks to be very interesting tests on all kinds of supplements and other products. They charge money for having access to their site. I just want to make sure I'm getting information from an unbiased company. I don't want them to be pro-pharmaceutical or pro-supplements. Thanks, Dr. Don. Well, George, I would... uh, 
I would tell you that I used to subscribe to Consumer Lab until I found out that I couldn't rely on it. And let me t- and I'm going to just say I was surprised that a lot of products that are very well known weren't on there. And Consumer Lab doesn't just charge the patients. That's what I thought. But somewhere along the way, after the first few years, they realized they could also charge the companies. Once they got some footing in the consumer marketplace, they began charging the companies to test their drugs. So you have to pay them to test your drug. And it uh, can be as much as $4,000 for that uh, for a single drug, which is... You know, can add up, obviously, given the number of supplements that are out there. And here's the th- reason I quit. Uh, they'll test other ones if they have a high market share. Even if you, they don't get paid, they may decide to uh, test an, another product. But if the product falls short of their standards, it'll be reported. On the other hand, if you pay them to test you and your product falls short, they're not going to list that on their the website. And that's Weasley. I'm sorry. So if you, uh, you're basically paying for a good review or no review. And I think that is dishonest. Uh, I had an experience. I've had this experience several times where uh, there, uh, an irate person in several cases, complete mistaken identity. They had the wrong doctor or they had the wrong sh- uh, shop in the case of, of my uh, my other business. But it didn't matter because uh, Yelp, bad Yelp goes up there and they don't retract it, even if you can prove that it's incorrect. Uh, unless, of course, uh, you join Yelp and pay them the commercial fee and then what they will do is they will suppress your bad Yelp. They'll hide it. It won't quite be, it won't come up except if the person scrolls down to, you know, review number 43 and then they'll see the bad review. But uh, by taking the review and putting it at the bottom, that's effectively hiding it because how many people go all the way to the bottom on the reviews? So I felt like this is the same thing. You're paying for a good review. Uh, and if it, if the, if it's a bad review, no one's going to hear about it. I don't recommend. I recommend that you save your money, but of course, it's your money, and you can take that wherever you want. All right, we have uh, we have time for to get down into the weeds a little bit with uh, uric acid, and. This is on just about every comprehensive metabolic panel. When you get a a physical, if they check your liver enzymes, they probably also checked your uric acids. But I will tell you that until I read this article, which is in digest of the work of Dr. David Perlmutter, who ironically enough resonates with the uh, story we did at the top of the hour, which is dropping acid with Dr. David Perlmutter. Of course, he's talking about dropping uric acid and why that's important. Now, as doctors, we're taught that a uric acid above seven is important because it increases the risk of kidney stones, but otherwise you don't have to worry about it. That turns out to be absolutely wrong. Uh, Drop acid draws on the work of Dr. Richard Johnson, a University of Colorado nephrologist, one of the world's most leading uric acid experts, and it lays out the case that asymptomatic hyperuricemia, that is to say high levels of uric acid in the blood that are causing no symptoms of gout, uh, are driven largely by excessive intake of fructose, and that it predates the development of elevated blood glucose predates and is a marker for the development of that hypertension, dyslipidemia, in other words, high cholesterol, weight gain, and chronic inflammation. And actually, this is not a new idea. You can find a book written in 1896 by a Scottish physician named Alexander Haig, oddly enough, and he already observed the conditions that migraine, depression, epilepsy, diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease were worked, were linked with high 
uh, uric acid. But he never got much traction in his day. And he focused primarily on dietary purines, which is to say certain types of proteins. And he advocated a purine-free diet that eliminated all meat, all beans, and many common vegetables. Now, there are high purine there are high purine f- foods and we do recommend pe- to people with uh, gout not to, to eat them and also not to drink alcohol but it turns out that the fructose is really uh, a big deal here and that the fructose itself raises uric acid because of the way it's broken down we've also found out that it isn't just a marker It's actually a signal. Elevated uric uh, acid is a signal to our metabolism to do something, to raise blood pressure, to raise blood sugar, to increase production of body fat, and to reduce the use of body fat for energy, and to reduce our metabolic demand by ratcheting down mitochondrial function. It's basically a elevated uric acid is a signaling chemical. So we need to look at our uric acid levels and the uh, just if we go back historically and we go back to 1920, the average uric acid level in Americans then was 3.5. And then in the 70s, by the 70s, it had gone up to an average level of six. And if you look at the American diet over that time, it correlates really well with our increased sugar consumption, particularly table sugar sucrose, which is 50% fructose. If we could get back to the diet people were eating in the 1920s, we'd have a lot less disease. We have to get rid of high fructose corn syrup, and we need to get rid of of sugar, fructose table sugar, because both of these, uh, sucrose and high fructose corn syrup, are killing us. And there's now additional evidence and a marker that happens before the hemoglobin A1C goes up, before the fasting blood sugar goes up. We want our blood sugar, we want our blood uric acid to be monitored by our doctors, and we want to keep it below 5.5. Individuals with a uric acid of 7 uh, or more uh, had an uh, increased risk of all-cause mortality, an increased risk of dying. In a recent study that looked at 50,000 men and 50,000 women, 16% increased risk of all-cause mortality. That's pretty significant. They also had a 39% increased risk of cardiovascular and a 35% risk of dying from a stroke. And for every point of uric acid elevation over seven, there was an additional 8 to 13% increased risk of mortality. This was published in Arthritis and Rheumatism 2009, Volume 61, if you want to go look it up. I'm like, my jaw dropped when I read those Uh, data. If you do the analysis, the sweet spot is getting that uric acid below 5.5. That's when the cardiovascular disease risk is. And given that that's the common one, that's what we're we're going to see. There are also some drugs that if you have elevated uric acid, you you might want to switch away from these drugs. I'm going to list them. Some of them will surprise you. Uh, Regular low-dose aspirin, Viagra, Prilosec or Omeprazole, which is widely sold over the counter and used to treat heartburn, Cyclosporin, which is given to people who have uh, organ transplants, Uh, Vitamin B3, taking high doses of niacin, going to have to rethink that advice that I give to people, Uh, Cinemet, L-DOPA, used to treat Parkinson's disease, Uh, diuretics in general, and the the beta blockers propranolol and atenolol can all raise uric acid. Now, it won't be necessarily high, and if but if there are other drugs, you should bring it to your the attend and you have a borderline level, you should bring it to the attention of your doctor. So here's the foods that you want to look get away from. You want to stay away from fruit juice, any kind, and sugar sweetened beverages. 
Uh, anything that contains high fructose corn syrup should be off your list already, but things that contain sh- sh- just plain old sugar are also bad here. More than three times a week eating red meat is problematic, and there's certain seafoods you should stay away from, primarily scallops. And sardines, anchovies, mackerel, those those high, unfortunately, those high omega. You can still get your omega from cod and salmon, however, those are low uric acid uh, com- components. And any of the deli meats, bacon, processed meats, beer and liquor, but not wine, interestingly enough. Uh, having, and of course, we've mentioned the drugs. People with uh, psoriasis need to... Uh, Make sure they track their uric acid carefully because for a reason that I do not understand, the the psoriasis tends to have a higher uric acid, and it's the uric acid itself that's doing damage. Okay, well, you've told me what to avoid, doctor. What can I do to help myself? And there are five supplements that Dr. Perlmutter provided science for, and I won't get into the weeds on this, but there are many of these things are things that I recommend. One of them is uh, docosahexanoic acid. That's DHA. That's a type of fish oil. A thousand milligrams a day will lower uric acid. Luteolin, which is a uh, a very strong carotenoid that has lots of beneficial properties at a hundred milligrams a day, also protects you from macular degeneration and eye disease. Quercetin, five hundred milligrams a day. This is uh, broadly helpful for also stabilizing allergies, and I take that myself and suffer no allergy symptoms even during the worst pollen times of the year. Uh, but if I stop taking it, it comes back. So I know it actually works. 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day, and 1,200 milligrams of chlorella. So if you're looking to lower your uric acid because you've had gout, I am giving you some tools that don't require drugs. If you've got cardiac disease and you can't get it to go down and you've tried everything else, the old standard cheap generic drug allopurinol that's getting a little radical, but it seems to me that because uric acid is actually shutting down something beneficial, uh, we need to consider treating people who are high risk just on this indication in light of this information. I'm uh, hoping that that is news that you can use. Now, this is another good reason to have good ventilation in your home. People spend 90% of their lives inside, at home or work or in a transport. Within these enclosed spaces, we're exposed to a bunch of chemicals from various sources, including outdoor pollutants coming inside, gaseous emissions from building materials and VOCs from furniture, and products of our own activities like cooking and cleaning. In addition... It turns out we ourselves are potent sources of mobile air pollution. And I'm not just talking about bad breath or body odor. I'm actually talking about hydroxyl-free radicals, oxygen-free radicals, which are very, very bad for your DNA and for, for aging your tissues. Now, when we're outside, uh there, there are a lot of chemicals that are uh, out there, but when they're outside, they get broken down by rain and through chemical uh, oxidation, and that's what the free radicals do. They oxidize uh, these chemicals and break them down, and they're considered to be the detergents of the atmosphere. They're good, and they happen all over the place. Anytime there's ultraviolet light, the sun interacts with ozone and water vapor, and you get oxygen-free radicals. But inside, you don't get the direct sunlight, you don't get the rain, and windows largely filter out the ultraviolet rays. So it was always thought that the concentration of oxygen-free radicals was lower indoors than outdoors, and uh, that the main problem that we had in terms of oxidation indoors was ozone. However, it's not true. It turns out that 
high levels of oxygen-free radicals are generated by humans indoors if there's any ozone at all. Uh, we're not just uh, we can't we we actually transform reactive chemicals and make them worse. So it, a lot depends on how much ozone is present and how much it gets into the indoor space. But once it gets in there, we generate oxidative free radicals by the reaction of ozone with the oils and fats on our skin. Particularly, there's an unsaturated uh, triterpene squalene, which is 10% or so of the skin lipids. It protects our skin. It keeps it soft and supple. And in fact, you can even buy squalene uh, as a face cream for wrinkles to put on your skin. But the squalene releases a bunch of gas phase chemicals that contain, that have double bonds and they react with the air and the ozone and they generate high levels of oxygen-free radicals. And this was discovered by uh, in the Technical University of Denmark and they were using a special climate-controlled chamber and adding ozone to a level that's found in uh, indoor settings. And they found high levels of free radicals. And the thing to understand is that these free radicals can oxidize a lot more than ozone. They can interact with all of those other compounds, like the volatile organic compounds that are coming off of the plastics or the furniture or the carpeting or the paint. And so we're going to be generating uh, new molecules with this these free radicals that we're producing in our body. And here's where it gets a little spooky. Maybe I should have saved this one for Halloween. But currently, we we look at the safety of these of the materials, the finishings that are used in houses. They're tested in isolation before they're approved for sale. However, they're not tested in the presence of people and ozone. So these oxidation products, uh, we we now know. They can lead to the generation of respiratory irritants and other free radical generating species. They can damage DNA. They can get into the respiratory tract and damage and age the respiratory uh, tract. And probably children and the elderly are the ones who are at the greatest risk for this. So ah, what can I tell you, folks? Keep your windows open. Keep the air moving. I mean, that's been the mantra for covid it's also the mantra for keeping the viral concentration from, uh, I think, having a cold end of the room where the window is open and heating the other side as best you can is not a bad strategy. And certainly using clothing and keeping a certain amount of ventilation to keep a certain amount of air removal in your house on an ongoing basis is starting to look like a really, really good idea. Maybe we should keep that bathroom evacuation fan on all the time. I'm not sure, but certainly is an interesting finding with extremely, extremely deep implications. Finishing off with a few short ones. Uh, This one is uh, about obesity. And the fact that there are two major subtypes of obesity, turns out not just one, and that there's some substantial difference in terms of the health risks of them. So let's dive into this for just a little bit. Right now, I was trained that we we use the body mass index to identify people with obesity. And it's comparing the weight in relation to the height and if the body mass index is below 20 is above 18.5 but below 27 the person is maybe a little overweight but they're in the healthy zone below 18.5 they're underweight and that's even worse than being overweight although being underweight isn't necessarily worse than being obese obese starts with a bmi of 30 and it's amazing how easy it is to get there over time And that's all all we learned. But using a combination of laboratory studies in mice and a deep analysis of data from Twins UK, which is a a research source looking at 
uh, twins in the United Kingdom and doing deep DNA dives and epigenetic dives in these individuals, uh, some researchers discovered that there are four metabolic subtypes that influence individual body types. Two are prone to leanness and two are prone to obesity. So let's go into the two obesity types. One obesity subtype is characterized by greater fat mass only, while the other was characterized by both greater fat mass and greater lean muscle mass. Now, I would have said that the ones with greater lean muscle mass were going to be healthier, but it turns out that they are the less healthy group because they have increased inflammation, which we know increases your risk of cancers, heart disease, Alzheimer's, all the bad things. Basically, if you're inflamed, you're going to get more of the bad things and you want to keep inflammation down in your body. And after they started looking at this in the human data, they went to mouse models so that they could use genetically identical mice and look at what was going on. And what they found was the inflammatory subtype is a result of epigenetic changes that are triggered by pure chance. It, with the, sim, the mice either grew to a larger size uh, or they didn't, and the ones that did either had the, the inflamed variant or not. And so these two subtypes seem to be epigenetically triggered. It's not clear whether it's stress, whether it's a random free radical moving across the DNA, uh, but it's associated with higher lean body mass and higher fat, higher inflammatory signals, insulin resistance, and a strong epigenetic signature that you can look at. We can label the repetitive groups of cytosine, and we can see the methylation on there. And so we know what we're looking at. And now the question is, can we find a way to clean off those methylation changes? Or do we want to identify these individuals and hit them with anti-inflammatories sooner rather than later? Well, that work remains to be done, but all of the anti-inflammatory uh, foods that I've been that I talk about and avoiding all of those foods that raise your uric acid would be a really good start. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to askdrdon.com for news about our future plans or follow my tweets at, at @askdrdon. For now, this is Dr. Don saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.